Hello, welcome to Mining Now. I'm your host, Jared Downey. Joining me is Gaudi Molina. Hello, Gaudi. Hello. How's all the tech going on over there? I think we're good. We're good. I think we've got some new uh, some new gear uh, on the way here. <laughs> Which I am a little bit terrified about, you know? Once you get to know your system and then something new comes in, you're it can be a little nerve wracking, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's like this, there's a surface version. Yeah. And then there's like the professional version. Yeah. But don't worry. We'll, t- we'll take our time. <laughs> but speaking of new technology, uh, that's, I, I actually wasn't purposely doing that segue, but it, it does it fit. Um, we have Copperstone Technologies on the show today and they have their CEO, uh, Greg, uh, Craig Milne. And uh, it's uh, they The equipment is on a robot which is obviously the eye-catching thing, but their equipment's doing so much more than that. So it's going to be a very exciting interview with Craig. Uh, before we do that, Gowdy, we have to, not have to, <laughs> want to. <laughs> big Give a sh- <laughs> it's a big difference. Give a shout out to our sponsors for Mining Now. Uh, first up, we have RudEye. Um, RudEye is a high-tech company which offers cutting-edge geophysical measurement services using unmanned aerial vehicles. Uh, RudEye's tailor-made field survey services consist of magnetic field measurements and data processing, geophysical data processing and modeling, thermal and infrared imaging, aerial digital elevation models and volume estimations, and much more. RudEye services are suitable for a wide variety of applications like mineral exploration, uh, geological mapping, environmental environmental monitoring, and more. You can visit their website at radai.fi. That is R-A-D-A-I um, dot F-I to learn more. Next up, we also have Savanaugh Equipment. Savanaugh Equipment supplies new and used mining equipment around the world from placer to underground to ore processing plants. They have gold concentrating tables, trommels, and mineral jigs. Uh, mineral jigs in stock now to take advantage of the high gold prices. You can visit them at SavanaughEquipment.com where you will find more equipment every day. Um, we also uh, have, of course, CIM. CIM is the leading membership organization for technical content and creating connections in the mining industry. Mining professionals and students can access a breadth of technical expertise through the CIM Technical Paper Library, the One Mine Digital uh, Repository, the CIM Journal, the CIM Magazine, and attend upcoming CIM webinars. Whether you're working in the field, in the office, or at home, uh, join the community today and learn how they can help you achieve your professional goals. Uh, find out more at CIM. We also have PowerZone Equipment. When you need a specialized team of world-class engineers for your oil and gas, pipelines, dewatering, or any fluid handling needs, you want to visit PowerZone.com. In addition to their inventory of rebuilt pumps, motors, engines, they also have an amazing team to design and engineer your systems, no matter the challenge, no matter the location. Get in the zone with PowerZone. Visit them at PowerZone.com. And last but not least, we have SolarSet. Um, introducing the new SolarSet Fold, the new foldable frame solar system brings power to your residential and commercial property and can be shipped worldwide. Like all SolarSet products, the SolarSet Fold comes turnkey, pre-assembled, and is e- easily transported and installed. You can learn more about the SolarSet Fold and their full line of amazing solar systems at SolarSet.com. Perfect. We got a full one today. <laughs> yeah, that, that is packed. Yeah. All right. Ah, that's a good thing. The uh, the cross promotion when we got lots of sponsors. Um, th- there is a reason yeah. the full sponsorship ones always have so many more views because you get Absolutely. all that that happening. Yeah. 
Uh, Craig, uh, welcome to Mining Now. Good to have you on. Excited to see your technology. I was watching. Rory does a post every morning um, or the night before we do one of these shows, and there's already been interest in it. So people are excited to, to see you on the show. Welcome to Mining Now. Thanks. That's great to be here. Um, okay. Let's you know, let's sort of set the, uh, set the foundation for the interview by just sort of clarifying where sort of how you present yourself as a company. Um, obviously, like I said in the beginning, the, the robot catches people's eye from a mile away, um, but maybe let you lay out who the company is, uh, Copperstone. So uh, Copperstone helps mining companies with hazardous site investigation using robotics. So the question of, you know, are we a robotics company? We get that a lot. And we are sort of, you know, we design and manufacture a unique line of robots called Helix, uh, but we also operate them too, because we recognize that not everybody needs to purchase a robot for the solution. And sometimes it's just about uh, getting the information from those, those challenging locations that our robots do. Mm, I see. So, um, now, all your services, though, are they based around that robot? Because there are other companies that are doing the same sort of thing, um, but you're basing it on the robot itself, right? Yep. There's certainly lots of services companies, and, and quite often we work collaboratively with other services companies as well. Uh, just because of the unique nature of our equipment, we're able to access locations that, that are typically unsafe for people or traditional equipment um, and places that other robotics equipment can't get to. Uh, and that's really what we do. And so we're able to, to either work directly for mining companies or uh, together collaboratively with services companies. I see. Is that, is that one of the main drivers is just the difficulty in getting to some of these locations? Is that really uh, where your product um, excels? Absolutely. So, you know, traditionally it's uh, on a tailings pond is where we do most of our work. And, uh, tail, you know, every tailings pond that we've been to is different. You know, sometimes they're water capped like a lake uh, and beautiful looking scenery with birds on them. And, and other times their muddy pits uh, can be several square kilometers um, with variable terrain and really challenging environments. Um, and so we built a, basically a robotic vehicle that's amphibious. Uh, and amphibious meaning it can crawl on hard ground and float and drive through water like a boat. Uh, so we don't run into the same challenges that a lot of equipment does where we can access the tailings ponds quite easily. Uh, and then we can traffic on any type of material that we come into and the robots designed. So it doesn't get stuck in that tailings, which is really the big challenge. I, I have to ask right off the top, how does it, how does it not get stuck? Cause if you know anything about some of these tailings or some of this, some of this material, um, it's, it was actually sort of mind boggling to me that it doesn't get stuck. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's really based around sort of this, this idea. I have a little model here of a, oh, a, screw, a screw-driven pontoon. And so it's, a, it's kind of an old design, actually. The first patent was in 1899 around a farm tractor that had screw-based uh, propulsion. Oh. And, and the idea is that as a pontoon, this allows the robot to float in water. Right. But then if we turn it, it becomes a propeller and can drive the robot forward. One of the things that we've done that's unique to the whole design is we actually made a four-wheel drive system. So it's got four independently controlled scrolls. Mm. So we can also drive forward and it becomes just like a wheel, like on a car. And so we can maneuver very effectively on hard ground or we can drive through water. 
<clears throat> and when we do get stuck in the mud, and we've got some cool videos on our website and, and YouTube, when we do get stuck in the mud, we just basically screw through it and screw forward. Mm. So, and that's, is, is it the independent design that sort of that four wheel, like, are they, are those four, and we'll bring up videos of it. And of course, um, even while we're talking, we can have one playing. Is it that are the all four, are they actually moving independently? Is that, uh, I, I know I'm going into the robot section of, and, but we'll, we'll talk <laughs> about the other side of it, but are all four moving independently? Is that how it's, is that the design? That's right. It's, you know, just like your four wheel drive truck that you drive. Uh, we have four independently controlled wheels, scrolls, and we can apply, you know, different amounts of power to each one. So as we, as we encounter, you know, especially when you think about when you transition across the beach into water, yeah, the first two wheels that hit the water, all of a sudden the, you know, the torque that they need is different than the wheels that are still on the beach. And so we can control that separately and, and drive efficiently on all those trains. So let's let's go into the sort of the the models them, themselves because you've got um, I mean from the outside looking in it's like there's a small one and a big one um, but uh, let let's can we can we start maybe with the the small one and what model that is and what what application it's being used for? Sure, sure, and and my my prop is deceiving. Our small one uh, that we have on our website is uh, Helix Twenty Five, and Helix Twenty Five, <clears throat> excuse me. It's about 130 kilograms, so it's about the size of a desk. Okay. And we built that. We built that specifically for a lot of water-based work, uh, and so that could be water surveys, like doing a bathymetric survey. We can do in-situ water characterization and sampling, um, and we can carry some smaller gear too. It can carry about 25 kilograms uh, of mass. Um, we're actually replacing that with a new model coming out. I'll talk about that in a moment, but I'll, I'll detour to our, our bigger one. Uh, we have another robot we call Helix AR2. And it's, it's about the size of a small car. Okay. Uh, and we can carry, so it's, a, it's about 700 kilograms of mass and it can carry an additional 300 kilograms or so of weight. But we do more like geotechnical investigations with that. So being able to, to drill down into a tailings pond or, or retrieve samples from several meters below the surface. Um, and that's, that's more its specialty and it's big because it needs to push and drill and, and do more heavy duty work. So those are the, the two models that we, we have had for the past year or so. Um, what we're coming out with actually, and you know, excited to announce it here on your show really for the first time is, is what we're calling Helix Neptune. Mm. It's packed all of the learnings that we've had over the past couple of years, especially around Helix 25 and, and a lot of water-based surveys. And we built a robot called Helix Neptune. It's, it's about 350 kilograms. So it's surprisingly large. That's about the size of a golf cart. Okay. But it's that big because we, we wanted to make sure that it had enough power and torque to never get stuck. But it also, we wanted to make sure that it could operate a number of different tools. So I mentioned things like like sonar and water sampling and in-situ characterization, some of that gear gets fairly heavy and some of it's expensive. You know, multi-beam echo sounder can be $100,000. So we need a fairly sizable robot to carry that around and to make sure that you don't lose that in tailings bond. Mm. So these units, can you give us a, sort of a picture? I, I know you've kind of touched on it, but can you sort of paint that picture of what, what, what is the, what are the tools and, uh, 
technology that's actually sitting on one of those like let's go with the neptune so we're talking about that what's actually going to be sitting on that or are do you, are you going to adjust the technology that's on it is it all packed onto it all the time or do you adjust it as the application is needed yeah so maybe i can break it into two different streams one is the the robot and and some of the base platform technology so all of our robots currently are based around this screw drive propulsion system you know this this basic idea and so within that there's we have sensors within the scrolls that that monitor kind of the environmental conditions and some of the, the engineering parameters around uh, how we control the motors um, there's navigation technologies so you know there's a basically a remote control that that a human operator stays safe on shore and can drive the robot with we also have a computer controlled ground station um, and fairly long-range telemetry radios and, and Wi-Fi. So we can control the robot from several kilometers away. We can sort of see through the eyes of the robot because it's got onboard cameras. Uh, so you can see what's happening locally for the robot. Um, and then we're building in more like autonomy and navigation systems, collision avoidance. And so that's common across all of our, our robots, those features. Then the specific... We, we call them payloads, really. They're, they're what makes the robot functional. So to do a, a bathymetric survey, for example, we would carry a sonar uh, system on board the robot. And we have, a, we have a mechanism to lift that while we're driving across hard ground, and then we can deploy that into the water. And then we have all of the GPS and uh, the inertial measurement units that control the pitch and roll, of the, that measure the pitch and roll of the robot as we're taking these uh, measurements the sonar below water um, but other other tools the idea is to have as many tools on the robot at, at once as possible so that we can go out into a pond and we can do you know the water sampling or water characterization or the the sonar measurements measuring below the surface um, or even some of the geotechnical things all at once the one thing that I noticed um, is is that there was quite a, a diverse amount of or of of landscapes and environments that the the unit was on. Now, is this is it powered by battery? I would assume. That's right. We you know we started out. Uh, there were, all of our robots are battery powered, battery and electric drive motors. Um, and you know, there's a real shift in the industry to focus on you know uh, reducing carbon emissions. So we wanted to start with that, uh, just because it, it it works, you know. And these are these are of course these are fairly big batteries, they're lithium polymer batteries. So we're more like a Tesla than a, you know the Energizer Bunny in terms of our battery power. Right. Um, but we also we are also looking at at gas and diesel options um, because in some in some situations it just makes sense to have you know, the, the power and the long life capabilities that you can get out of a, a traditional powered engine. Um, but, but sort of battery is our, our standard that we offer. So, and, and the reason I was mentioning that is I saw it in some of these cold climates. How would a unit like this perform, um, you know, the, the cold, harsh Canadian North? Well, that's where we live. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're a robotics company out of Edmonton. So, Cold testing is uh, nine months of the year for us. You got to um, find good weather. <laughs> That's so, so really, you know, batteries. Of course, they're they're less efficient in in cold weather, um, and we just we plan for that, right? There's the robots all have battery monitors on board, so that we know at all times what the status of the of the batteries are when they're 
fire out in a tailings pond and, and the robot can return home safely with battery power. Um, and then we, we just, we can just essentially add more batteries to the robot They're, They are large and they can carry, they can carry large battery packs. Uh, and that's again, part of the, the scale of the robots that we're building is so that they have enough battery power right. to work hours at a time. Yeah. Cause right now, like a smaller, like a, like the smaller unit, what, how long would that go for it? And just in, let's say just like kind of average weather, like, you know, that sort of 10 to 25 degree weather. Yeah, two, two or three hours would be, would be a typical um, run of batteries for us. And so, you know, how we would operate uh, at a mining, at a mine site is we would have two completely full sets of batteries, one on the robot, uh, doing its work and the other one we would keep on shore and we would charge it up either with local power supply or a, or a generator if that was the only thing available so that we basically always have one set and we can trade in and out as the as the robot comes back home typically to do what you're doing with them though would you would you need a couple would would a couple units be deployed like into a tailings pond or is one generally enough How, or is it set up different depending on the demand um so could you sort of outline that Right now, right now, typically one robot goes out and does its work. Um, we haven't we haven't encountered the need yet where we need to deploy a fleet of robots. Although, you know that that's a possibility. Um, you know, it just means say we were doing a bathymetric survey of a very large lake. Uh, instead of having one robot uh, run a grid system for several days, we could deploy several robots and then they just share and coordinate data. Um, it just comes down to to the the speed and efficiency that the client needs that that work done with. I I'm and, and honestly, Craig, I mean, if you've you know watched the show or if anybody watches, I mean, there's so many there's so much that we cover on the show, and of course, I'm not an expert in a lot of these things um, by any stretch. So I, you kind of touched on. Um, the, the different applications. So I, I don't know much um, about hazardous site investigation. So if there is a couple things and you can kind of out, outline again, what those things are, um, is it, has it been quite a challenge to make this robot and put all these unit, these different applications on to then to make it all work hand in hand, or is it usually doing one job at a time and then it sort of gets reworked and then does another, or are you sort of working towards making it be able to do multiple tasks? Yeah. So the, um, most of the robots that we have, they, they'll do one job at a time uh, because a client might want um, a sample from one location and they might want some, you know, a shear strength measurement from another location or even close by. And so typically, you know, the robot might go out and do a sampling campaign. It might, you know, we, we can hold up to 10 samples on our, our larger Helix AR2 robot in a sample magazine. So it'll go out and collect 10 samples. It'll come back home, deliver the samples to an operator safe on shore. And then we can just swap out tools, basically take off the sampling tool and put on a cone penetrometer and go out and we can then go back to those same 10 locations and measure, measure something at that, those locations. Um, you know, what we'd like to get to in the future is the ability to do them, you know, really right back to back. Uh, and that just makes us so much more efficient. Right. Um, but it's not, it's not been a really critical or limiting factor for us yet. It's, you know, clients are, are quite excited about just the safety aspect of not having to put people on a tailings pond. That's the, right. that's the biggest <laughs> hurdle that, uh, that we're helping our clients over right now. 
What about the design of it? Like this sort of the evolution of the product. Um, you know, I always, uh, I'm always curious to see the first prototype or, or actually I find the first prototype. I like to see it like a few steps before that, because that's when it's sort of the, some, sometimes the humor comes into it on how much things change. Um, what has sort of been the evolution of, of the, of the product? So that, you know, that started, uh, seven years ago. Uh, one of the founders of uh, actually, all, you know, the founders of Copperstone were mechanical engineering graduate students at the University of Alberta. Oh. Uh, and they were working in uh, uh, a lab with uh, Dr. Mike Lipset, who's, um, you know, got lots of experience at, at companies like Syncrude. He was a, a research manager there for a long time on tailings. And so they were doing a research project, essentially trying to deploy a sensor in a tailings pond. Uh, and they bought a, a wheeled robot you can get off the internet. Um, and they put their fancy sensor on it and they sent it out onto the tailings pond and it got stuck. Yeah. Luckily they had a rope and they pulled it back and they realized that uh, the wheels weren't good. So they put tracks on it and they sent it out into the tailings pond and it got stuck, you know, pull it back again. And, and it really highlighted this problem for them that the challenge, you know, they built this fancy sensor, but they couldn't get it to where they needed it to go. And so then that's where they start, you know, digging through the archives. And there's always, there's always cool ideas that people experimented with a hundred years ago. And that's where the screw drive concept first originated. I mentioned this farm tractor from 1899, you know, Chrysler in the Vietnam war had built something called the, the Chrysler Marsh amphibian. It's an awesome video to watch. It's really, uh, patriotic, (laughs) but it's, uh, you know, it's basically a screw drive tractor that they used for investigating swamps in Vietnam. And, and it was through, you know, these kind of ideas that they thought maybe we should build a, a new robotic platform based around, you know, a scroll drive concept like this. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the genesis of the platform. Um, and then the designs over time, they grew, right? They, like anything, they, you know, they started with sort of the known concepts at the time, which was a two screw system. And, and there are other vehicles, there's, you know, um, there's an Australian company, Mudmaster, that Fibian that makes uh, the Mudmaster tractors that, you know, two long screws and they use them for dewatering of tailings ponds. And they're great at that. Um, but what they're not great at is doing is, is, you know, turning, rolling sideways, driving on hard ground, being highly maneuverable. And, and that's what we needed when we're, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to get within centimeter level accuracy of our, GPS positioning so that we can do bathymetric surveys so that we can respond to wind and waves in real time. And so for that, we moved to that, this four screw system and that's, that's unique and a lot more challenging for us to have done. And, but that was a evolution of our design. Were were there, um, so again, not being, not, not being a, an expert on it, how were people going out and doing this before? Like, 20 years ago, what, what were they like snowshoes or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, even how it's done today. So if, if the beach is, if the, you know, the solid area of a tailings pond is firm enough, you can drive a truck onto it. Right. Um, there's always a little bit of concern, like, is it solid enough? Right. And that's the big question. So, but you can drive a 20 ton truck out there and, and do a lot of this work and that works great. If you're going out onto a water capped facility, it's a lot more challenging. And so there are, for bathymetry, so being able to do the water depth measurements, you can do it with the boat. 
And so the questions then are like, how do you get the boat into the water? Because a lot of tailings ponds have long beaches or slimes or, you know, we, we did some work recently in a pit lake where, the, you know, the walls literally around the lake are really steep. You can't get a boat in there. Right. Um, and then if you're doing more of the geotechnical work, uh, there are large amphibious rigs. So you can get a, a, a very large floating platform. Uh, and like they're so large that they actually have an ex excavator on top of them sometimes. Oh, okay. Um, and, and that's, that's even the backup propulsion system. If the, if the, it, you know, they sometimes have tracks and if the tracks fail, then it becomes the excavator pulling this thing through the mud, right. which is really inefficient. Um, but the, the scale of that vehicle is so large that yeah. the deployment of it becomes a challenge. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a big investment if you just need to get out and do some quick measurements. And that's really where uh, we have been able to help mining companies is because we can get out there quickly, efficiently. We can traffic around in all sorts of conditions and, and it's okay if it's open water or hard ground. And we don't need those specialty boat launches. Is there... What is the response? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you, the company is like you're talking seven years ago. That's, I mean, in mining, in mining industry world, that is, that is very new. <laughs> so, um, you know, what is, what is the response Do like, like the get stuck question? I mean, it, it, does that get asked every single time you go to pitch or, or do people have a pretty good understanding as soon as they sort of see a video of it and, and know what you're doing? You know, um, we, we do get the question all the time about, whether, you know, what do we do if we get stuck? Um, and really that's, you know, that's what we're designed to avoid, right? Is, is to get stuck, but it does happen. Um, and practically it's better to get a robot stuck than a person. And, and the sad fact is that that actually still happens. You know, people, there are fatalities on tailing spawns. I mean, you know, happened here in Alberta recently, happens all over the world. Um, and so we would definitely rather get a robot stuck than a person. Yeah. Uh, our, our business model is geared so that that risk of the robot stuck is not our client's problem. That's copper stones. Um, but we have a, we have a, a rescue system in place. And so it actually happened a couple of weeks ago. We had a software crash, which never happened before. Worst phone call <laughs> possible for me was like, uh Oh, the software crashed and the robots unresponsive. But what we did was we have a, a backup robot that has a, a, basically a rescue system on it, a, you know, a, a hook, a tow line. And so we can, we deployed that robot. We sent that robot out actually the same day we, I got the phone call. Uh, it got to the mine site 24 hours later, we had, we'd hooked a tow line. We pulled the, uh, the stranded robot back to shore. We had flashed some new software on it, had it up and running and completed the work 24 hours later. So, you know, for us, getting stuck is always a little bit scary, but we have those systems in place to mitigate it. Yeah. The, um, actually you kind of touched on it, that the business model, what, what is it? Uh, how do you, I mean, are people buying these robots from you? What is, uh, are, are they renting them? What's your, what's your system for actually getting it out into the market? You know, our, our preferred business model is, we call it robots as a service. And so um, it's not a rental, you know, because that's really focused around, you know, uh, some fractional ownership of the asset over time, you know, much like a lease, essentially. I think about it more like riding the bus, right? If I want to take the, the public transit to a location, 
it costs me three dollars and fifty cents here in Edmonton, and I can I can get on the bus and I can go somewhere, and I don't have to care about the maintenance of the bus, the bus showing up on time. And, uh, you know, I, I trust that the, the bus driver has been properly trained and understands all the safety requirements of, of driving a bus. But for me, as, the, as a traveler, you know, I just want to get to a certain location. And, and that's really, you know, a, a good nutshell of describing how robots as a service works. You know, client wants, you know, 80 samples out in a tailing spawn. They want a bunch of measurements over in this hazardous location. You know, we, we have a, basically a, we come up with a project price for that. Uh, we'll go out and we'll do the work. And, you know, we show up on site with a, you know, an excellent field crew that, you know, all the safety training required, um, you know, work with the mine to make sure that we're compliant in work permits and, and all of that. But then the robot just goes out and does its job. And the, the mine owner doesn't have to think about right. the risk of people. They don't have to think, they don't even have to worry about us getting the robot stuck because, you know, we're going to go rescue that if that does happen. Right. So you're actually, yeah. So, the, and I, I misunderstood that a little bit um, when we first met is that uh, you, you're not, this, this isn't me running a mine and I get uh, a couple engineers and a couple uh, <laughs> of my lead crew to, to hook up this robot and go sending it out. I don't, you, you're actually sending your people out and you're running these machines. That's right. You know, we, we eventually want to get to the concept where the robots are so user-friendly and, and, you know, basically autonomous and intelligent that, that anybody could, that anybody could operate it. Right. Um, right now they're still, at, they're still at the, the, the stage where, where our people are, are essential on, on shore. Uh, and so operating and, and maintaining and even switching the payloads between those different functionalities that's, that's done by our people. And, it, it's easy to do for us. It would be hard to transition that knowledge to, to a mine owner. And, and frankly, it's not something that they're interested in, right? If, you know, if, if our actual client is a geotechnical engineer, the last thing that they want to do is have to deal with a robot, right? They right. just want that data back. Right. Is it, um, the, the technology itself, how did it sort of all come together? Like you mentioned back, you know, these, you know, students putting it together originally and then doing their research and that, but, but how is it sort of the process over the last seven years? How is that sort of that R and D and that testing and then finding people to, you know, let, let you test and, and that whole process. Can you kind of walk us through that? Cause it's sort of a fascinating part of taking a business like yours to the market. Yeah. It, um, and it, you know it's, it's a challenge too. It's it, it's not an easy endeavor, um, but luckily we've had some we've had some absolutely fabulous supporters along the way, and that that's made all the difference for us. And so, you know, the very the very first iterations were were supported by um, some of the oil sands companies here in Alberta. Uh, you know, they wanted to see if there was a vehicle that could traffic on. Uh, they have a material called centrifuge cake, and it, it's like cake batter. So, and yeah. if you can imagine, if you can imagine, you know, cake batter before it's baked, like trying to walk on that or drive on that, it's, it's just impossible. It is the thickest, stickiest, uh, it's not delicious, but it's, it's <laughs> the most challenging material you, you really could walk on or traffic on. And so, you know, the earliest prototype was this two screw vehicle, just as a, an experiment to see if we could drive on that. And that worked basically how, it, how the evolution of the company has gone along is, you know, as we 
as we do more and more projects, we always learn something. Every project is different. Every tailings pond is different. And we always make sure to include those learnings into the next version of the robot. Um, you know, even, even something as simple as I mentioned, this, these pit lakes that we recently were investigating. Yeah. It was a challenge. When we first looked, like, how do we crawl down a wall that is 42 degrees? You know, that's, that's, not, that's not easy, especially when you weigh 350 kilograms. And so we, we developed a, like a winching system, uh, which, you know, the robot itself was powerful enough to climb up. It's actually powerful enough in theory to climb up a 90 degree wall, but it becomes a loss of traction problem. And so we developed a winching system from a, from a, you know, a ground supported truck um, that we can make sure the robot doesn't lose traction as it climbs up. And then we, you know, we torque the robot enough that it can climb up anything really. But those are always, you know, the learnings. And every time we do something, we just, we learn a little bit more. It's part of the reason why we like the services model too, is we have that high touch point with clients. Right. And there's no shortage of problems that they give us to solve. So it's been yeah, great. And that's, it, it actually is something that stands out for me is that you're not, you're not saying, oh, this is the, you know, it's not like riding the bus in the sense, if I'm understanding it right, is that it's the price is the price and you get on it. You are, you are building it out for each client. So there's not, and, and the reason I say to me, that's a key selling feature because as soon as I see, especially when it's technology service type stuff, and it's just this uh, bottom line price that you get, it kind of tells me there's limitations. <laughs> it's like, okay, they're, they're, they're in a box. They've, they've done their calculations and this is what they do. And that's what you get. And if it's not right for you, then it doesn't, they're, they're not right for you. So you're not, you're not really putting yourself in that box in any way. Yeah. You know, not at all. And, and, you know, the other, I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is we, we really don't charge our clients for the, the NRE or the, the non-recurring engineering of building something new, you know, for us, when a client has a new problem for us to solve, we do our best to take on that ourselves. Uh, in terms of the, the engineering of that new solution, because we're, we know we're going to be able to carry that forward. Uh, you know, great, great example. Um, a client of ours asked us to do a bathymetric survey. So, you know, we're in a water cap facility. We're, we're using a sonar system to measure the depth of water. But they said, well, while you're there, we've got this asset that is underwater. We haven't seen it in 25 years, and we don't know what it looks like anymore. Can you tell us what it looks like? And so what we did there was we thought, you know, we can, we can basically piggyback a second robotic vehicle, a remote operated submersible with a camera and take the two robots now communicating with each other. Uh, And we can use the remote operated vehicle, the submersible to go and inspect an underwater asset because it's got camera systems and control systems to control it underwater. And we've got a surface support vehicle already built and ready to go to provide communications, power, and all the control systems. So that, you know, the really cool thing about that is that simple request from a client that we can solve now becomes this huge opportunity for us to say, hey, if you have anything underwater, you know, we can now solve that with this, this piggybacking of robots. And it's, it's a super unique solution because, you know, anybody can go buy a, a remote operated submersible off the internet, but it's tethered to you standing on shore. And so you still have the problems of how do you get it to the water? Yep. How do you communicate with that if it's a kilometer away? So we can go 
with our helix robot, we can go a kilometer away and then we can go down and we can still transmit video and everything. And so it's, it becomes a really unique solution just from that simple request from a client. How do you, uh, as a, so, I mean, I just opened the show talking about the, we're, we're upgrading um, equipment to try to get, you know, we're trying to gain about 30% more efficiency in our production time and things like that. And so you're always trying to balance, um, but then there's also the time of learning it and you're sort of going to, you know, you're going to have, it's like, oh, we might have to film a couple episodes or twice if it screws up, you know, the, the things that you're going to run into when you're doing a company and, and yours, you're kind of doing it at a whole new level. Um, how do you sort of, you know, cause I was going to ask, you know, how do you feel when you get these challenges, these new requests? And I thought that's sort of an easy question um, because, you know, you, you kind of, you maybe have a moment where you take taken back, but then you sort of tackle it. It's the nature of, you know, entrepreneurial and getting into uh, a new market. But I, I think a, probably a better question is how do you balance it? That you come in, you have, you've got, you've got your sort of core, and, and it's it sort of get you're building onto that core, but now you get more challenges um, that are coming in or, you know, new ideas. And how do you balance between this is a good business decision and this is a neat idea and this is we need to spend our time tackling this? That's a great question. And I probably should have a good answer for that. <laughs> but I think it's a question. You know, I think it's a, we're all looking for that answer. We, we, uh, you know, we have a couple of core values at Copperstone that are really important to us. And, and one of them is we think yes before no. Mm. And so I get in trouble all the time around the office here because I say yes to a lot of things, including building, you know, remote submersibles. <laughs> but you know what? We have just been absolutely fabulous team of, of creative engineers and they love solving problems. And so, you know, we, we, of course, we try and take on opportunities where we can see a future to it. If it was, if it was truly a one-off, um, you know, it would be, it would require a lot of investment from us to do it. And right. so the client would probably have to help out on some of the investment to get that done. But if we can see a future opportunity, you know, and whether it be, you know, climbing down damn walls or, or, you know, developing new payloads, um, then for us, it's, it's absolutely an opportunity for us to, to take on that challenge, say yes to it, and then figure out how to get it done. And have you run into those situations where it is a one-off and you go, this is not, you know, for the, what the customer would have to pay for what we would have to do that this is not, and, and just be transparent with the customer. Have you run into those situations? A hundred percent for sure. Like, um, you know, I think one of the sponsors today was, uh, red eye, yeah. they, you mentioned an aerial aerial drone service, right? So if all you need to do is is you know eyes on site, aerial drones are a better option, right? You can get out there faster. You don't have to worry about contact with with harsh chemicals in the tailings pond or anything like that. So quite often when when we talk to people, if all they need is inspections, it's like they, you know we do recommend they they use an aerial drone for that. Um, and and so that you know that happens for sure. Um, but we haven't, we haven't been in a situation yet where somebody's asked us basically too much. I think it's almost the other way that I think that we're, we're helping our clients sort of realize the possibilities because mm. uh, we, you know, one of our inspirations is the Mars missions, Mars robots, mm. you know, 
once you send that robot to Mars, you're not bringing it back to fix it or to add another sensor, right? It's got to go out there, you know, and planned 15 years ahead of time with every sensor, every diagnostic, every maintenance possibility that you can think of at the time. And so, you know, as we, as we sort of put that in our clients' mindsets that, you know, I think that they're changing from the, the concept of what they can do today with, with people and trucks and amphibious carriers to, you know, hey, maybe we could do that. If you're out there already, could you also inspect something underwater? Could you also take a sample? You know, we were at another mine site recently and, and we were able to get samples that their only option was a helicopter. Uh, and, yeah. you know, we were there, we were nearby, it was easy. We just grabbed a sample and, and delivered it to them. And, uh, you know, a lot more efficient than helicopter could too, so. You know, the, and, and I always think like we, you know, you're, we have some giant companies on, on the show and, and like, and, and you're serving some massive, massive companies, these, these mining operations, it must be quite the feeling to take your, you know, <laughs> I mean, some of your robots, they're not that small, actually the size of a car. It's actually for a robot. It's quite a big robot, but um, it must be quite the feeling to see this unit come into these huge operations and solve such some major challenges that they have like, just for you as leading that company and, and working on your team with your team, that must be quite a payoff for you seeing that. It, it's exciting. I, I can't, uh, I can't lie on that one. It's, you know, it's a thrill to come to work every day. I think our whole team loves what they do. It's, it's, you know, we are solving some really big problems and we're doing them in really cool and creative ways. And I think that, I think that it, it drives us as a company and, and hopefully it, it ignites the spark with our clients too, to see how willing we are to, you know, bend, not bend the rules, but like think out, outside of the box and just, you know, solve problems that they, that they didn't think were maybe solvable. Yeah. They just always hoped that they could solve. Yeah, that's that's the thing that the, these so many of the technology and it's it's actually overwhelming for for me personally on the show. It's been overwhelming to see that how many of these things that you just sort of take for granted are the way it is. And we live in a world now where there that does not exist anymore. These problems can be solved. And 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 Craig, thanks for coming on the show and doing this and and, and you know letting us kind of unpack Copperstone um, because it's quite exciting to see where the mining industry is headed. When we started the show, I know this seems silly now, but there was some talk or like, are we going to be able to find enough new technologies to cover? <laughs> and we, about, I don't know, about 10 episodes in, we're like, yeah, that's not going to be our challenge. That's not the issue. But thanks for coming on the show. It really neat stuff. It was. I'm glad you had videos so we could actually bring those up during the show and, and the audience could actually see what you're doing. It's quite exciting. So I, I do hope you come back because um, uh, as we say on our show as well, uh, I think things are just getting started. Awesome. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. Okay. How was that? <laughs> I, I, well, I was, I keep these saying, I was like, oh, maybe I can get like a discount, but they're not selling them. <laughs> you can buy one if you want. Yeah, you, you can, everything is for sale, right? Yeah. Um, can we just have one in the background? You know? I know. I, instead of the prop, I was hoping one would drive across in front of you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that would have been so cool. Um, okay, Gowdy, where can uh, where can people fall? We've got lots of people that are um, suggesting guests to us. Yeah, sponsors are coming in. A lot of the sponsors are also previous guests. Um, lots of fun. But where can people go to do all the connecting with us? 
Well, first off, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss a single episode. Um, you know, we've got Mining Now, Crownsman Energy, uh, The Crownsman Show, and just about to launch uh, Crownsman uh, Egg. Mm. So <laughs> there's so much uh, that you don't want to miss. Um, uh, if you'd like to be part of the show, any of the shows, um, or would like to recommend someone to be part of the show, um, contact us, info at crownsman.com. Perfect. Thank you, Gowdy. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Copperstone. Thank you to all our sponsors. We love doing this show. Um, it, it's, it's honestly, it's quite an honor for me to be able to look at all these technologies and, and base essentially get paid to be educated. <laughs> that is the dream. <laughs> that is the dream. And I get to live it and we get to live it. Thank you very much, everyone. See you on the next episode of Mining Now. <laughs>